So I want to start today by telling you guys uh, a secret about myself, okay? Secret about myself. I want to let you into, into my world, okay? Here's my secret. I am a bad man. It's true. It's true. I know some of you are like, Cameron, don't, ah, push back, right? It's true. I'm a bad man. I know I am. I've actually been bad since the very beginning. I've been dealing with it my whole life. And not only that, but, but I know I'm really bad because I've experienced this. There are times in which I've been bad, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being bad. I was actually very, very satisfied in doing the bad things that I was doing. And still to this day, I am naturally a bad man. I find myself inclined to lust, to rage, to hatred, to contemptuousness, to ruthlessness, to greed. I am naturally... A bad man. Now, that being said, you guys aren't off the hook. Oh, I know some of your dirty secrets too. We've been friends long enough. Some of you, you're bad too. In fact, I've talked to you guys about some of your stories and listen to me. I'm not trying to pick on you, but some of you have told me your stories of being bad and you told me that story with a smile on your face. Because it was an enjoyable bad moment, right? Yeah, it was enjoyable. And I know some of us, we're, we're all bad. We have this inside of us that all of us, if we're honest with ourselves and we ask ourselves, really, we would say, yeah, oh, I, I got some bad. I, I'm bad. How many of you are willing to just admit, just in front of everybody, with me, stand up with me in this? You don't stand up, but raise your hand. How many of you just admit, yeah, I'm bad? Yep. Okay, cool. Okay. So we all understand that. So how, why do I start this message by doing, why, why do we start on such a, um, an uplifting foot, right? You know, like, oh, okay, great. This is, this is, how, we, this is how we kick off this new series. Uh, you know, we're bad. We're all bad. Here's why. If we know we're bad, we can get better. If we know that we're bad, we can get better. If you don't know how bad you are at something, you don't try for better. But if you know that you actually are bad, you can realize the idea of, I could get better then. There could be something I could do to move in the right direction. And that's actually what this entire series is about. Bad with money. The interesting part is we're starting a three-week series on money that's not about money. It's not about money. You see, money isn't the problem. It never was and it never will be. It wasn't the problem and it certainly isn't the solution. You might think it's the solution, too. It's not. The reality is we are the problem. You are the problem. I am the problem. We are what is bad. I love the way that Dave Ramsey puts it. When he talks about money, he talks about the idea that money is amoral. It means it has no morality. It doesn't lean to the right or to the left. It doesn't lean toward good or toward bad. He says, I I liken money to like bricks. I can take a whole load of bricks and I can build a hospital. Or I can take them and throw them through your car windshields, right? Either one. They have no morality. It's what we do with it. And here's what happens for us. All of us just admitted, yeah, there's, there's bad in me. I, I'm bad. And the problem is, is we're bad, and then we get some money. Then we get some money. Bad and broke is, is bad. Bad and some money? Well, that might be worse. In fact, some of you know this for a fact. Some of you had bad habits in your past, and the worst thing that would happen is when you got money. 
Because when you've got money, oh, well, now I can finance my bad habits. That's terrific. Oh, man, now I, have, I finally have some cash to get this bad habit off the ground, right? To get this bad attitude off the ground, to get these bad behaviors off the ground. What if money actually made it worse? But again, money's not actually the problem. Money's not actually even the conversation. The conversation is about us. We are bad with money. Not bad with money, as in don't know how to spend it. We're bad, and then we get some money with money. It all comes back to our heart. Money is amoral. It follows our own bad habits. And what we're going to talk about in these three weeks is we're going to talk about us. It is all going to affect money. It's going to be in light of money because that's a really, really important area of our life. But listen to me, none of this is actually even about the money. It's about us. Next week, we're going to talk about the idea that for a lot of us, one of the ways that we are bad in this world is we are extremely foolish. We're extremely foolish. And then what happens is, is we get money and we are foolish with money. Week three, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about how a lot of us, to be honest with you, one of the ways that we're bad is we are very, very selfish. Then we get money and we are selfish with money. Today, what I want to talk to you about is probably something that's a little bit more um, obscure. You probably wouldn't think of it. Those two you might be um, preparing for, like, yeah, those make sense in regards to uh, our finance. This one, you might be a little bit more caught off, but actually, I think this is the most important of all three. I actually think this message is the most important of all three because I think it's the key behind everything we're going to talk about in the next two weeks as well. Because of us being bad, one of our bad habits that we have that follows through into money is this. We are idolatrous with money. We're idolatrous. And some of you are like, go ahead and define that for me, Cameron, because I don't use the word idolatrous in my, in my everyday language, right? Some of you are like, I've never thrown out the word idolatrous in a conversation before, right? It doesn't come up. What does idolatrous mean? It means worshiping an idol. And an idol is anything that is created. Anything that is created. Of course, in God's word, anytime he talks about idol worship, he basically says, I'm the one who created everything you see before you, every tree, every stone, everything in this world. So if you take anything and you begin to worship it, you're worshiping a created thing instead of the creator, and that is an idol. You know, sometimes we have this interesting fascination where we'll take and we'll look back at these stories, or maybe we'll watch something about people who, who are idol worshipers, and we'll think, that's so silly, that's so foolish that they worship an idol. I mean, it's just a stone, it's just a piece of gold, it's just this. But realize and understand, it's not that they're worshiping that thing, it's that they're trying to worship whatever that thing represents. You know, people would laugh at, like, idol worship, they're like, they just made something out of a, a stick, and then they worshiped it? It's like, well, no, they're not worshiping the stick. What people said is, there must be some sort of violent God that's cursing us. Well, he must be mean, so he probably has, like, the head of, like, a, I don't know, a lion, and probably has wings, like some sort of scary bat. Carve that out of stone, and, and let's go ahead and start making sacrifices to him to get him off our back, Right? And there's this conversation of using this created thing to kind of represent something instead of worshiping the created God or the creative God. We would say, now, you know, Cameron, I disagree with that. I don't worship money. I don't worship money. I'm not idolatrous towards money. But that might be because we have the wrong definition of worship in our mind. You might just be thinking of like what we did there. Like I don't take and stack up a pile of money and come and sing a praise song to it and raise my hands, right? Oh, money, how I love you. Well, I don't do that, right? So you're like, I don't worship, I don't worship to money. But maybe it's because we've, we've misdefined worship. Because let me give you just a few ways that we commonly worship, okay? And we and we worship, we worship tons of different things in our life. The issue is what we worship most. 
But listen to some of the ways that we worship and ask yourself truly, have you not worshipped money when you hear these things? Okay, here's a few ways we worship. First, we give attention and concern to something. We give attention, focus, concern to something. That's a way we give worship, giving it the right worth. That's what that means. Worship, giving it the right worth. Second, we often celebrate and communicate the accomplishments of something. That's a way in which we worship. Surely with God, we do that all the time. I come up here all the time and I I celebrate and I communicate the accomplishments of God because I want to give him true worth, right? Same situation with us. We can worship anything in regards to our, our created world. Third, what we do is we make sacrifices of time and energy to something. One of the ways we worship is is we make sacrifices. We give up substantial portions of our time and our energy to serve that thing. Fourth, we put our trust and our hope in something. We put our trust and hope in it, and that is a way in which we show the worth of something in our lives. Now, if we're honest, a lot of us would admit those sound like pretty much what we do with money all the time, doesn't it? Those are pretty much just standard things in our life of how we interact with money. So we make sacrifices to it of our time and energy and we concern ourselves with it and we celebrate when we get some of it. And of course, that's how we worship money. Oftentimes, we are bad with money and the most common way I think we do it is we are idolatrous with money. Well, Jesus, the master teacher, he wanted to give insight to this idea where a lot of us tend to turn and become idolatrous with money. We begin worshiping money and he talks about what that looks like in our life. And I love Jesus because he's so smart. Instead of just saying something, he tells us a story so it lodges in our mind, it lodges in our heart, and it sticks with us. And he tells the story of this rich man in Luke 12, 16 through 21. He says this, And he told him a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? And here Jesus in verse 21, he wraps up the entire parable to make sure we don't misunderstand it. He says this, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. He says, you're foolish to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. Another better translation of that would honestly be, it says, it's foolish to become rich on earth and not have a rich relationship with God, to not be rich to God. The idea that you've put the focus of riches in the wrong location. Now, what I want you to see when you read that story is, the money wasn't actually even the problem. Some people could read that story and they're like, see, this guy was super rich and he had all this money and, you know, rich people, they're bad people. He's one of those greedy capitalists, right? You can see he's making all this money, he's storing all this, and God comes and he smotes them, right? Totally not the application of the story. Just for instance, just, you know, totally off base. That's our own culture maybe shaping our concept of this. This is what he says. The money isn't the problem. The problem wasn't that you were rich, The problem wasn't that your fields produced tons and tons, more than you could have. That's not problematic and that's not sinful. Here's the problem. It shows up in verse 19. 
He says, I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Here's what was wrong. He made the money his idol. How so? He laid the foundation of his future on his finances. He said, I can sit back and relax. I'm good to go. My years are planned. Next four or five years, I'm good because I have all this money and the money is where I'm putting my trust. With this money, I can sit back and relax. I can trust in this money and it will take me through these next four or five years that I am good. That is the foundation I am building my future on. But God shows up in that very moment. And listen, God didn't show up and kill this man. That's not what the Bible says. It's not like he come up and he's like, you're so evil. And he's like, smote and, you know, crush him, right? You're dead. That's not what God said. He showed up and he said, you fool, today was your last day. Not I'm taking your life today, like, because you're evil. He said, you spent all this time saving up this money, but it turns out, man, today was your last day. Since the very beginning of time, today was marked off as the closing day of your life. And here you are stacking up all this wealth. And he said, how foolish, because this was your last 24 hours. And he says, instead of focusing on being rich to God and having a rich relationship with God, who's, of course, going to usher you into eternity, you focused on piling things up in this world. He said, you you fool. And that we can become foolish where we begin to idolize to trust in, to worship money for our future instead of God. To have riches here on earth instead of being rich to God, a rich relationship with him. Here's the central problem, the theme that Jesus is pointing us to us, pointing out to us. You can't worship God and money. What he's saying is, is you can't worship God And money, it's impossible. It's impossible. You can't do both. In fact, Jesus speaks to it just that clearly in Luke 16, 13. He says this, No one can serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and you will despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Better translation is even clearer. It just says you can't serve God and serve money. It's the picture of a slave, the picture of a servant who is serving a master. And he says, you can't have two masters, it's impossible. If you do, you will inevitably start to love one and hate the other. You will be devoted to one and you will despise another. And he says, this is the situation with you in relation to God and money. And everybody would have been shocked, just like you might be if you've never heard that verse before. Because you would expect Jesus to say, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and, and everybody in their mind probably filled in the next word, the devil. And maybe Jesus paused for a second to let them fill it in their mind and then said, money. Maybe people were shocked. Money? Well, I thought the enemy of God was the devil. But Jesus is so wise. Thousands of years ago, he knew it then and he knew it now. That most of you are not tempted to worship Satan in your daily life. You're not tempted to worship the devil but you're tempted to worship money every single day. He says, this is actually the really dangerous one. 
This is actually the one that's going to get you off base, is you're going to begin to worship money, to trust in money, to put your focus of your life on money, that that is going to be your master. And he says, here's the problem. You can't worship God and money. Here's what he's saying. There is no such thing as a tie. There's no such thing as a tie. I mean, you know that that's actually the case, right? A tie is a lie. There's no such thing as a tie. I mean, even in a race, when you run a race and we call a race a tie, it's simply because we don't have good enough measurements to be able to get down to it because there's never really anything that's actually a tie. If you could bring it all the way back down to a lower decimal, someone won that race. Someone won it. At an atomic scale, someone's atoms crossed that before the other one. There is no such thing as a tie. And he says, listen, same thing. No such thing as a tie when it comes to your worship. You can't worship both God and money. He says it's like trying to worship or trying to serve two different masters. You will begin to love one and hate the other. You will begin to be devoted to one and despise the other. Here's what he's saying. You will inevitably prefer one or the other. To prefer something is to love more. And he says if you try to love God and money, you will inevitably prefer one of the two. And here's the problem. In our lives, in every area, we always defer to what we prefer. To defer is to yield to, to give preeminence. We always defer to what we prefer. You do it every single day in your life. You do it throughout your entire life. You knowingly cheat certain areas of your life because you love another area of your life more. I'll give you a really quick example. It's easy. If you're married or if you're dating somebody, you stay up way, way, way too late with the person you like and you drag your butt into work the next morning. You knowingly cheated your your career. You cheated it. But you did it on purpose because you deferred to what you prefer. I love my wife or I love my girlfriend or I love my husband or I love my boyfriend more than I love work. So tomorrow I'll just go ahead and just drag myself into work and be like, I'm not doing so well today, right? And it's like, why? Because I deferred to what I prefer. I would have rather spent extra time with them than I would be 100% for this. The problem is, is you always defer to what you prefer. And he says, you will always prefer one or the other, God or money, which means you will ask one to become subservient to the other. Here's the, the crux of my entire message, okay? You either use money... To serve God, or you use God to serve money. Those are our only two options. You in your life either use money to serve God, or you use God to serve money. Those are the two options that we have because we will inevitably inevitably prefer one over the other, and whatever we prefer, we will always defer to. And listen, many of us, are bad. And when we come to this situation, we choose the bad choice. We choose to prefer the wrong thing. And we choose to make an idol out of money instead of the living God. Paul, when he wrote to this young pastor that he was uh, mentoring named Timothy, young pastor of a church, he writes to him to talk about this subject. And he talks about how dangerous this is for people's lives. And listen what he says in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money, look at this, have wandered from the true faith 
and pierce themselves with many sorrows. He says, there are some people who were following Jesus. But then they started preferring money. And he says, before long, they walked away from the faith they knew. He says, the people who were following Jesus, but just like that, that rich fool, all of a sudden they started building the future of their life on their finances. The foundation of their life. They started putting their trust in money instead of God and erect their life. I heard one writer say it this way. He says, if you try to love God and money, you will soon realize there is no God. No, there must not be any God. It doesn't fit anymore into my worldview. All of this got me thinking. I want to ask you a question. Because I think a lot of us are bad. A lot of us struggle with this area. And it affects all of our lives. And it got me thinking about us. What do you call a person who follows Jesus? A person who follows Jesus but prefers money. What do you call a person who's following Jesus, but they prefer money? You know what the answer is? Judas. Judas. The guy who was the disciple of Jesus, one of the 12 who walked with Jesus for three years while he was here on earth. But God's word gives us a deep insight into who Judas really was. In fact, the writer of John, John, Jesus' like closest friend, he writes about a scenario in which Jesus went into this town and this person came to worship Jesus. And he gives insight into this disciple named Judas and what he felt in this moment. John 12, 1 through 6 says this. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. That's an amazing story. Go back and read that sometime. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor, and Martha served, uh, Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair, and the house filled with the fragrance. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold, and the money given to the poor. But then John, go ahead, and he gives us some insight, because, of course, he's writing this after the fact and realized what happened after everything came out in the wash. He says, verse 6, not that he actually cared for the poor, He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. What do you call someone who follows Jesus but prefers money? Judas. Judas followed Jesus for three years. He was there at all the big moments. He was there. He was faithful. Anyone looking from the outside would say, Judas, he's a faithful man. I mean, look, he's there every weekend. Oh, he's there for all the big moments. He, he says all the right words. He knows Jesus. He, man, he's right with them. But he had a heart that preferred money. And you can see this situation where finally worship comes to Jesus. Expensive worship comes in front of Jesus. And you can see Judas almost sick to his stomach. Can't you how he says that? 
that perfume was worth a year's wages. You can just hear him like clutching his stomach, like about ready to puke. You poured out that much money on Jesus' feet? Oh my gosh, you can just see it making sick to his stomach. He turns to the disciples and he tries to kind of rally them. I mean, don't you think we could have spent that money better? Which is a joke, by the way, too. I always laugh when people want to criticize how churches spend their money. Don't you think you could have spent that better with this? Don't you think that money could have been used to feed starving children? I always ask them this. You can do the same thing. How many starving children do you feed a year? Because you really quickly realize that they don't actually care about starving kids either. That's just this fake Judas comment, right? Don't you think that could have been used to help the community? How much money do you give the community every year? Didn't expect that one coming back at me, right? You mean I have to actually do something to talk about it? Oh, okay, sorry. Didn't realize that. Anyways, side note. But listen. (laughs) Judas followed Jesus, but he preferred money. I said, you can either use money to serve God, or you can use God to serve money. And here is this man who is using God to serve money. Oh, he's there every weekend. Oh, he looks like a faithful Christian. He looks like he's following well. But in all reality, the reason why he was there was because Jesus was his meal ticket. He carried the money. So every time Jesus preached a message and people rallied and they're like, oh man, give an offering to Jesus so he can keep going. He just laughed and kept going ahead and stuffing that in the bag and skimming a little off for himself. When expensive worship was given to Jesus, it made him sick to his stomach, but not because he really thought it could be used better. It was because if that would have been put into the offering, I could have taken some off the top. You see, Jesus is my meal ticket. He's my little blessing machine that gives me everything I need in my life. He's my little slot machine that I pull the handle and go ahead, bless me, Jesus. Bless me, Jesus. Give me more money, right? Using God to serve his money. And it reaches its inevitable conclusion. Only a few days later, Matthew 26, 14 through 16 says this, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests and he asked this, How much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? Oh, not that he just didn't like Jesus, right? Not like Judas was just like, I can't stand this guy. I want him to be stopped. No, he leverages his relationship with Jesus into finance. And he says, just quick question. How much would you pay if I betrayed Jesus to you? It says they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. You can't worship God and money. You can't. One will have to serve the other. You will prefer one, and you always defer to what you prefer. You will either use your money to serve God in this life, or you will use God to serve your money. Those are the only two options. The rich fool put his trust in money. Judas preferred money and went ahead and turned his back on the living Savior because he preferred money over Jesus. So for us who might be Jesus followers, my question is, are we Judas? Are we Judas? Are we people who are following Jesus, but we prefer money? If that's the case, we are in a dangerous, dangerous location. I mean, does anybody want to be lumped in with Judas? 
I don't know if you noticed, but you probably don't know any kids or anybody named Judas. You ever notice that? Nobody names their kid Judas. Why? He's the one who betrayed the maker of the universe, the Christ. That name is anathema. Even in our culture, 2,000 years later, no one wants to name their kid Judas. So if here you sit in the situation where you're following Jesus and you think, I might be Judas, it should send those shivers down your spine. That's the right response. And think, is there something that I could do to make sure I don't walk down the same path as Judas? Is there something I can do in my life to make sure that I don't end up being the same kind of person who betrays Jesus? Well, thankfully, God is so wise. And from, out, from his word, from the very beginning of the scriptures all the way through the end, he gave us a clear thing that we can do that will set us up for success and will kill the heart of Judas inside of us. In fact, it made a special appearance when the people of God were entering into the promised land. They were removed from being slaves. They were taken into this promised land. And God said, I'm going to take you from being slaves to incredibly rich. In fact, those people went and they had expanses of land. And the kingdom of the Jewish land, like all these people who were the descendants of Abraham, they become exceedingly rich. And before they enter into this promised land, their leader Moses sits down and pens a book called Deuteronomy. And what it was is, here's all the things you have to remember when you get into the promised land so you don't mess this up. And he makes a special point in Deuteronomy 26 about talking about what's going to happen when you get there and all of a sudden... You finally have some money. Here's what it says, Deuteronomy 26. I'm going to actually read verses 1 through 10. I know it's long, but it's good, so stick with me as I go through it. He says, When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you as a special possession, and you've conquered it and settled there. Put some of the first produce from each crop that you harvest into a basket and bring it to the designated place of worship. The place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored. Go to the priest in charge at that time and say, With this gift, I acknowledge to the Lord your God that I have entered the land he swore to our ancestors he would give us. The priest will then take the basket from your hands and set it before the altar of the Lord your God. You must then say in the presence of the Lord your God, My ancestor Jacob was a wandering Aramean who went to live as a foreigner in Egypt. His family arrived few in number, but in Egypt they became a large and mighty nation. And when the Egyptians oppressed and humiliated us by making us their slaves, we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. He heard our cries and saw our hardship, our toil, and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and a powerful arm, with overwhelming terror, and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place. And he gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 10 closes it out. He says in this, And now, O Lord, I've brought you this first portion, this first portion of the harvest that you have given me from the ground. And then he placed the produce before the Lord your God and bowed to the ground in worship before him. God says you're going to go into this land and you're going to become exceedingly rich. You're going to have all of this money. And you've got to understand, back in this time, their grain, their cattle, that was their money. They didn't have printed money. They didn't have all that stuff. You would trade. You'd take the handfuls, the bags of grain, and you would go trade them for something else. And you take that to the blacksmith, and he'd make you an implement. Or you'd take an animal, and you'd slaughter it, and you'd bring that, and you'd trade it for something else. And that was their currency. 
When you would bring in the harvest, the idea of taking a big force first portion and taking it to the, to the temple would be giving up a whole piece of your income and saying this first portion goes here. And what God was setting up here and way, way, way before this, all the way back to the very beginning of the Jewish faith named Abraham in a situation with a follower of the Lord, a priest named Melchizedek, all the way through to the very end of the Bible was this idea that is throughout all of it that kills the heart of Judas in our life. It is the first portion gift. The first portion gift. Listen, money might be amoral, but its first purpose is worshiping God. Money may be amoral, but its first and rightful purpose on this earth is worshiping God. That's why it's here. And he says, the thing that you need to do so that you don't get distracted, so that you don't start idolizing the money and thinking that's what's going to take you through to the next years, to think that that's what's going to be the foundation of your life, to think that that's why you're here, is to right off the bat, as soon as you receive any increase, to take the first portion and bring it in and say, the first portion of my finance goes to worship God. I'll live on the rest. And it breaks it breaks the heart of Judas inside of us. That as we, even if we decide just consciously, even if we don't feel it yet, as we walk through with our actions, preferring God, all of a sudden it begins to work backwards in our lives. As we begin to say, my money will serve God, not asking God to serve my money. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to defer to God. We begin to grow in our heart a preference for him. And like I said, it's throughout. This isn't some sort of one-time thing. In fact, like I said, it existed all the way back, way before the law, all the way forward, all the way to the place of after Jesus coming, after him dying, after him resurrecting, the start of the church, Paul writing this church in Corinth about the idea of them collecting finance to go and spread the gospel to help the believers in Jerusalem. He says this in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. Now, regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave the church in Galatia, meaning this is the same thing I'm telling everybody. On the first day of each week, you should put aside a portion of the money you've earned. Don't wait until I get there to try to collect it all at once. He says there is this genius of a first portion gift. That when the very first thing we do with any increase we receive is worship God... It kills the idolatry in our heart because we're saying the first priority of my finance is him. All of us are bad. So naturally, all of us are bad with money. It's only natural. Sadly, many of us, though, the way that we're bad is that we become idolatrous with money. We begin to build our life on it. We begin to build our future on it. And we think that that is what our life is made out of, that that is what our future sits on. My question is, are you? What do you prefer? Do you prefer God? Or do you prefer money? You will prefer one or the other. There is no such thing as a tie. And that question, I don't want you to answer it in your head right now. I don't want you to say, well, I prefer God. I prefer God. No, I prefer God. I'm good. No, it's a test. Here's the test. You defer to what you prefer. My question is, do you prefer God or do you prefer money? 
And the way you find the answer is by looking through in your mind or looking through in your finances, do I defer to God or do I defer to money? Do I think about how to use my finances to worship God or are all my prayers just asking God to bless my finances? Who do you defer to? Who do you prefer? We either use money to serve God or we use God to serve money. If we find ourselves as a follower of Jesus who prefers money, we are in the same footsteps of Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Two different places you might be today. One, you might realize that you prefer money. Now, if you're not a Jesus follower, just exploring your faith, you don't really believe in this whole Jesus thing, good news is you're off the hook, man. Oh, you're off the hook. You don't, you don't even believe Jesus is real. I will tell you this. If you begin to use the first portion of your money to honor God, I would be wondering what God would do in your life if he might not reveal himself and show how real he is. Not telling you what to do, though, because you don't believe that Jesus really is the Savior of the, the world. Now, but for you who actually say you believe this, that Jesus really is the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the Christ... There is no way you're going to be successful in your faith if you try to walk out this faith preferring money. You will follow the same footsteps as Judas. And if that's the case, then your application is to immediately, as though there is sickness in your stomach, fight back against it. To immediately say, I must change the way in which I use my finances to first and foremost honor God, to first bless God, to take a first portion, whatever percentage I want to pick, 1%, 2%, 5%, whatever that is, don't care. Whatever your first percentage is and say, whatever I get, the very first however much percent, it's going to go to worship Jesus. It's going to go to the local expression of that. I don't know if you notice, but all throughout the Bible, from the very beginning to the very end, it's the idea of the community together. That's why churches exist, because as we pull together, we're able to leverage that first gift of worship into spreading the gospel into communities. So if this is your church, it would be here. If this isn't your church, don't give here. Give to your church. Wherever your church is, where you say, this is my community, that's where you take that portion and you say, use this to further the spread of the gospel. That's the first benefit. Now, if you're a person who is a first portion giver, you've done this for years maybe, The thing I want to make sure you understand is this. It is far more important than you think it is. If you are a first portion giver and you've done this consistently, you might be doing it just out of habit. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying have this automated, having this set up is bad. But here's here's what I am saying. It is critical to the continued success of your faith. Here's what I know. All of us who are Jesus followers, who are even first portion givers, We are only ever a few portions away from preferring money. We are only ever a few portions away from preferring money. Do you know how I know this is true? Because your pastor is a bad man. Because I've gotten behind on honoring God with my finances before, where I didn't do it for a few weeks. I didn't do it for a month. And listen, when I sat down to write my check of the portion that I had forgotten about, that I had skipped, as I began to write out those numbers, do you know what happened? I started to hear the voice of Judas in my head. I started to feel that sickness inside of my stomach. Are you really going to give that much to Jesus? Are you really going to give that much 
to the ministry? That it only took a handful of weeks, a handful of increases of not being faithful in it. And I could hear that voice of Judas rise up in me and I had to push him down and beat him to death and say, you're darn right I'm going to give that to God. You're darn right I'm going to give that to the Lord. You're darn right I'm going to give that to the furtherance of the gospel. You know why? Because I'm just a bad man. Everything, everything, everything that is good in my life came from his hand and his hand alone. And you say, yeah, I'm going to continue to do that and I will sacrifice and I will first and foremost use my finances to worship God. Because I want to make sure that my wife, I want to make sure that my son, I want to make sure that any of my family knows that I realize I'm just a bad man who's been blessed by God and that anything that comes in my hands came from him. So the very first purpose would be honoring him and worshiping him. Would you pray with me for a second? God, I thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for your word. I thank you for how you talk about money because you are exceedingly wise. You don't talk about money like it's a standalone thing. You realize that money isn't the problem, it's us. And you take it right to the root of the problem and I appreciate that so much about you, Jesus. I pray for those who might right now be preferring money. I pray that you would reveal to them just the grandeur of your goodness in their life, that they would not be able to walk away from it without realizing that all the blessings in their life flow from you and all the goodness in their life comes from your hand. That they would take a step of faith, as scary as it might be, to become people who would take the first portion and would use it to worship you, God. And you would reveal to them how you promise, you promise to continue to bless and care for them as they do that. Jesus, I thank you so much for this day. Lord, bless everyone here. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.